Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode two. Let's do a little shopping here online. I'm at Amazon.com, and this this guy here it says this hybrid design has an inner sleeve of a selected species of handcrafted mahogany made by using an intricate curing process. Its outer housing of metal, machined from a special non-resonant, very hard metal alloy, utilizes a special processing and casting method to increase the porosity of the alloy. This Combination of wood and metal ensures that the earphone chamber has no ringing, which might obscure detail or add coloration. The way the wood and metal housing moves air and reacts to sound vibrations is now virtually unaffected by transient distortions. Well, that sounds fan. Hmm. $1,695. Well, let's. Let's see. Let's cut that down. Here's one. Okay. This one has. Pin back circumaural design for exceptionally natural sound, wide stereo image, and increased depth of field. Lightweight construction featuring aircraft grade aluminum alloy yoke and stainless steel grills for enhanced durability. That is fantastic, but mm, $600. $600. Hmm. Okay, I want some headphones, but let's just drop that down too. What, what do you get for $5 on Amazon? Let's see. Oh, okay, here we go. Their large 30mm diaphragms feature neodymium magnets offering full-bodied sound free of the discomfort that can sometimes accompany earbud-styled headphones. The foam cushion phones also feature a wide headband for added listening comfort. The phones are equipped with XBS acoustic ports, which naturally emphasize bass frequencies for rich sound from nearly any source. $5. Wow. These people are pretty proud of their headphones, too. So, why do retailers find it necessary to throw up these giant walls of hyperbolic text full of bullet points and specs, whether or not the product is $5 or $1,600? Well, they do it because it works. And it works because you are not so smart. And this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. I am David McCraney, your host. Each episode, we explore a new topic in the realm of self-delusion. Of course, what we're talking about here is technobabble. We call it technobabble, of course. Uh, sometimes in other arenas, we call it maybe psychobabble, neurobabble, uh, financiobabble. And it takes the place of actual knowledge. It gives you the illusion of knowledge. And that's what we're going to talk about today with our guest. But um, look, before we do that, here's, here's a great example. This is... Um, for power balance magnetic bracelets, which uh, you see a lot of people wearing and they are supposed to, I don't know, give you magical powers because it's an amulet that contains uh, some sort of a spell that is evoked whenever a hologram comes in contact with your skin. I don't know. Let's look at the explanation. It says right here, this is from the actual product's uh, explanation, <clears throat> description, I mean. 
power balance bracelets contain two mylar holograms, which are embedded with frequencies that react with your body's electromagnetic field. When the static power balance hologram comes in contact with your body's energy field, it begins to resonate in accordance with each individual's biological energy system, creating a harmonic loop that optimizes your energy field, maintains maximum energy flow while it clears the pathway so the electrical chemical exchange functions like the well-tuned generator it was designed to be, resulting in immediate improved balance, increased core strength, greater flexibility, increased range of motion, and overall well-being. Well, I don't know what that means, but it sounds great. And that's that's actually the power of technobabble is that it illustrates the illusion of knowledge our actual understanding of how the world around us works is rather shallow and you can illustrate this this is actually part of a real experiment if i were to ask you to build a bicycle from scratch could you do that if i were to ask you to draw in detail a functioning zipper in every direction and every which way that it would make total sense to a person who had never seen a zipper before. Could you draw that? What about differential gears or a carburetor or the Krebs cycle or I don't know, just about everything in life? You know, how does a television work? How does a computer work? How does a stapler work? Even a person who is an expert in one topic is likely to be not an expert in most all the other topics. But that's not how it feels as a modern human being you have this sense that familiarity equals understanding, and that is the illusion of knowledge. It's really well illustrated in Star Trek, where they use a lot of technobabble, but you have to think about this. Um, Star Trek is set in the deep future in sort of a fantasy tech, uh, science fiction world where the uh, no matter who you are, you don't have a lot of familiarity with what's going on there, so they can play on that and just have someone spout out some technobabble whenever they need to, and move the plot along. When a writer of Star Trek uh, needed the plot to be moved along by a scientific explanation, they would just write in the script in bold letters, tech, and then fill it in later on because it really wasn't that important. Here's a great example from Spock. We could construct a device to collect their high energy photons safely. These photons could then be injected into the dilithium chamber causing crystalline restructure. <laughs> That's great. And it's just technobabble. It moves the plot along. It takes the place of actual knowledge. It takes the place of actual understanding, which is what technobabble does in real life. When you read the explanation of how those awesome headphones work or that power balance works, it's just technobabble to move the plot along. So that's what we're going to talk about today with our guest, Christopher Chabri. Shabri is the co-author of The Invisible Gorilla, which is a wonderful book that I highly recommend everyone buys. He's the assistant professor of psychology and co-director of the neuroscience program at Union College in New York. He's also the adjunct assistant professor of neurology at Albany Medical College and a research affiliate at MIT Center for Collective Intelligence. Oh man, this guy is super smart. Um, and before all that, he was a lecturer and research associate at the Department of Psychology at Harvard. So, uh, this guy is amazing. Um, he is going to talk to us about the illusion of knowledge. And after that, there will be cookies. And if you're new to the podcast, well, it'll all make sense in a minute. Let's pick this guy's brain. Chris, in the book, The Invisible Gorilla, you and Dan Simons write about the illusion of knowledge. Could you explain that concept? Sure. The illusion of knowledge is a term that Dan and I came up with, although it's actually been used elsewhere, we, we found out later, but it's a term that we came up with to refer to the idea that 
often we think we know or understand a topic better than we actually do. So it's not simple overconfidence, which is sort of a general overestimation of our skills or abilities. In a way, it's more specific than that. It's the kind of illusion we have when we uh, buy a complex financial instrument, thinking that we really understand many more details about it and how it's likely to perform or what its value is likely to be than we really do. Uh, it happens a lot in in planning uh, future projects also. So when, when we sort of convince ourselves, let's say a, a government agency or even voters will convince themselves that some public works project is going to cost a certain amount of money and last a certain amount of time and, and so on. And those are almost uh, always wrong estimates. It's sort of the illusion that we really understand that better than we uh, better than we actually do. Yeah, when I was reading about it, it brought to mind the idea of how whenever people predict what the future is going to be like, whether it's a flying car or uh, it's people with uh, shoes that have hot air balloons on them, it's always really, really wrong. Uh, and that seems to translate over into politics, technology, financial markets, and everything. Huh? I don't know about you, but I came to this podcast on my own flying car. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's right. There, you can make you can make a fun hobby out of looking back. You know what was written seventy years ago about what the twenty first century would look like, and uh, and and so on. I mean, some of that is you have to allow for uh, speculation. Of course, you know you have to think. Uh, you know, well, it's okay to speculate, and and uh, who, after all, can know the can know the future? We should all realize that the the problem comes though when we sort of forget about those limitations or when some speculative forecast gets written down by one person or organization and then it's used as an authoritative one by another or when the the variance uh, around these forecasts is really you know sort of forgotten about and they're taken as exact predictions usually there's a huge amount of uncertainty around any kind of forecast like that and people tend to forget about it a great example uh was um when they were debating, um, I think it was the uh, Obamacare, you know, healthcare bill, or something similar like that. This comes up all the time. Uh, they get some uh, estimates of uh, what the budgetary impact is going to cost. Let's say, you know, how much revenue some tax bill is going to raise, or how much some spending program is going to cost. Uh, and you see sometimes certain politicians involved claiming to base their decision on. The precise nature of these estimates, you know, I'm not going to vote for it if it's more than $900 billion, but I will vote for it if it's less than $900 billion. Mm -hmm. Of course, the $900 billion estimate is plus or minus hundreds of billions of dollars in the long run. Um, and, and that little tweak of more or less than 900 and paying too much attention to that, I think, uh, reflects this illusion of knowledge that we somehow know what the cost is going to be. And, and that knowledge should deeply influence our decisions. Does it drive you crazy as a uh, psychologist to watch political debate? <laughs> uh, it doesn't really drive me crazy. I, th I think there are some arenas when you sort of have to turn off your, you have to turn off your psychology glasses a little bit, <laughs> and uh, you know, and, and, tr and try not to try not to get too crazy about it. There are some things, though, like what I just mentioned, that that I do notice uh, politicians and, and people in politics doing over and over again. It's it's almost sort of a, a feature of the culture to have these. Um, uh, the political culture, I mean, to, to have these uh, forecasts and rely on them too much. Of course, we should have forecasts. It probably would be bad not to have forecasts, but uh, it's almost like once they get written down or once they get stated, they, they acquire this, you know, oracular, uh, this oracular quality that makes people trust them much too much. So it does sort of upset me when, when people 
uh, you know, trust those things far, far too much. And they're all they're all kinds of other, uh, you know, sort of illusions that uh, politicians and people in politics you know, fall victim to. They're the same ones everybody else does. It's just that those guys are on the news all the time, so you can sort of see when they make mistakes, right? But you don't you don't get a news bullet every time your every time your friends do something equally equally bad. Yeah, the stakes are just a little higher. <laughs> uh, you um, talking about forecasting? Uh, one of the more uh, crazy things in the book is just the uh, you posit that weather forecasters have fewer delusions about their own knowledge than other people, and they may make uh, better predictions because of it. Could you go into more detail about that? Well, the funny thing about weather forecasters is that they're one of the only groups of people, uh, at least the only ones that, that I know of, who have really analyzed the data historically well enough to be precisely calibrated in their predictions. So by precisely calibrated, I mean that you know, on the days when they say there's a 50% chance of rain, it really does rain about 50% of those days. Uh, now, those kind of forecasts bother people because they don't know what to do with a 50% chance of rain. How should I dress? Should I bring two sets of clothes? Should I, uh, you know, should I put my raincoat in the back seat or whatever? Uh, but you'd much rather hear a 100% or 0% chance of rain. But the 100% and the 0% forecasts actually are, the, you know, in some ways the most dangerous ones uh, because there's only, there's only one way to go uh, in accuracy from, from those, which is, uh, which is down. You know, you, you can't have more than 100% of the days when you forecast 100% chance of rain, uh, actually rain, you can only have less than 100%. But overall, it turns out that they're very well calibrated and they're, they're, they become uncalibrated only sort of at those extremes um, when they actually wind up with the 0% or the, or the 100%. Uh, they're, not, they're not perfect and the long-range forecasts obviously are, are not that good. And I think the long-range ones might be a little less calibrated than the short-range ones. Um, but their forecasts really do express their level of knowledge. They have learned um, how to express uh, well-calibrated forecasts, uh, even though sometimes people don't like them very much because they seem wishy-washy, 50%, 60%, so on. Yeah, you said that um, we tend to prefer people who are confident, even if they're falsely confident. Yes, and that's, that's, part, of the, um, uh, that's part of the interaction between the illusions of confidence and the illusion and uh, knowledge. Uh, so, um, you know, experts who, you know, who do have some legitimate knowledge, um, you can argue more or less weather forecasters have a lot of knowledge uh, about how the weather's going to work. Stock pickers don't have as much knowledge, um, but the stock pickers who we pay attention to are the ones who express the most confidence or sort of pretend that they have the most knowledge or don't admit to any uncertainty. So, uh, you know, people on TV who are, you know, saying buy, 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 you know, and sell, sell, sell. They, you know, I think they get the best audiences and, uh, uh, the, you know, ones who are saying, well, maybe, maybe not, uh, you know, who they don't get paid as much attention to. And you could sort of, you know, you could sort of see, well, why would I pay attention to someone who, who says, you know, maybe, maybe not. But on the other hand, the weather forecaster who says 50% chance of rain should be paid attention to because uh, that's actually a, a historically accurate forecast. It would be nice if they could get up to 100% and 0% being their only forecast. So it's not as though this 50% business is ideal, right? I mean, we'd like to, uh, be nice to ultimately one day live in a world where we understood the weather well enough that we could predict it, you know, only using, you know, uh, zero and 100%. But until we're there, we shouldn't be pretending to know more than we do. Um, in, our, in, in everyday life, in an average person's life, um, could you talk a little bit about how the illusion of knowledge affects the way we, we, 
our belief and how we understand how things work. In the book, you talk about um, people not actually knowing how to draw a bicycle or understanding how a zipper works, that sort of thing. Could you go into some detail about that? Yeah, this was a great study by uh, Rebecca Lawson, who's a British cognitive psychologist um, that that uh, we wrote about in the book. Um, she asked people a really simple question in her experiments to rate on a one to seven scale, the good old psychologist one to seven scale, uh, how well they understood how a bicycle works. And she collected a sample of subjects, um, various backgrounds. And then after they had given this rating, she asked them to draw a bicycle showing the, the key working parts like the chain and the, and the, the gears and uh, the pedals. And she actually gave them – she drew the frame already in the handlebar so they didn't have to sort of make a whole artistic production out of it. They just had to sort of fill in those key working parts. And surprisingly, a lot of the subject's drawings were of bicycles that could not possibly work. So my favorite is when the chain connected the two wheels. Uh, and so therefore, if you think about it, if the chain is connecting the two wheels and you try to turn the bike, let's say, to the right – the chain is going to fold and the whole bike is going to crumple and you're going to fall, you know, you're going to fall down um, like that. So the, the, what people don't seem to, to realize in their internal models of bicycles is the relationship between where the chain is and the fact that the front wheel needs to be able to pivot left to right. So the front wheel actually can't be connected to any chain. It's got a um, – the, the chain has to power only the back wheel and the front wheel has to be free to turn. And, you know, once you hear all that, it probably seems obvious, but if I had surprised you with this question or, or a listener with this question, uh, they might have made one of those mistakes. Also, another mistake that she showed a drawing of was um, someone who drew the pedals such that they did not actually engage with the chain. So there was no way by turning the pedals on this bike to make the chain, to make the chain move and no way to power the bike. Um, so uh, some of these people who made these bad drawings actually rode their bike every day. So just merely having experience of familiarity with something doesn't guarantee accurate knowledge. And in fact, that's one of the the cues that we use to assess our knowledge, which is often uh, misleading. So sort of mere familiarity or exposure to information about something doesn't necessarily confer true knowledge or understanding. And one of the things we argue in the book is that that can become dangerous when the amount of information and familiarity with uh, sort of inherently complex and difficult to understand things grows and grows. So the more, you know, uh, CNBC and Yahoo Finance and all kinds of information sources about the financial markets there are, um, the more we may think we understand them. But what we really are doing is just following the noise. You know, the price is up this this hour, it's down that hour, some news event came out or something like that. We may just be sort of understanding noise and not understanding the actual underlying workings of the system. And we also, and you write about how just there being a lot of explanation on a topic, or if there's a lot of technobabble or a psychobabble surrounding a topic, like something as simple as a HDMI cable on Amazon, we're more likely to purchase it because we just sort of skim over all of that. Is that how it works? You think an HDMI cable is simple, but if you read some of the description... <laughs> Out, it turns out that apparently some manufacturers don't think it's a simple thing at all. Uh, I, I don't want to accuse anyone of anything, but it, it seems like uh, there are some cables in this case. That was just a, one humorous example we found. It was so outlandish that it was worth reprinting in the book. There, there are some cables that you can buy that cost $500 for, let's say, an Ethernet cable. Some of the HDMI cables are really expensive nowadays. And uh, the, to justify that price... 
uh, the vendor writes all kinds of uh, what's you know what seems like techno babble, describing how these cables have special features that protect against certain problems and so on, which uh, don't really even make any sense when you really start to unpack the language. Uh, and uh, I, I think um, uh, they sort of lull us into paying attention to that kind of stuff and thinking that it matters and thinking that it therefore justifies uh, a higher price. Uh, and the cable was an outlandish example that we used uh, in the book. I, I wish I had the description memorized. It's so funny. Um, but if you look at other products, the same thing gets done. Like, um, you know, Blu-ray players. If you look at the specs for Blu-ray players, there's usually a huge long list of all the different things they can do and so on. And if you're really a... Uh, you know, a movie junkie and you really, you know, or you're one of those, you know, guys who has to have the latest and greatest thing and so on, you know, that makes sense. But I have a feeling that people are being affected by this stuff who really only want to watch movies, uh, you know, at home on on discs or something like that. And but so but if they make their buying decisions based on all this other stuff, they're kind of falling into this illusion of knowledge, the idea that this other information is teaching them something important about uh, the topic when it's really, it's really just uh, potentially leading them astray. Yeah, in the book, you say the, uh, the 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 description said that it was made of a high purity copper wire designed to thoroughly eliminate the adverse effects from vibration and help stabilize the digital transmission from occurrences of jitter and ripple. Yes, jitter, jitter and ripple. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my that's my favorite part. They sound like um, they they sound like old fashioned uh, you know illegal forms of wine or something like that. <laughs> Uh, you know, like, uh, no, but, but jitter and ripple in digital communications, I, I don't quite understand that. If I, you could see where it was sort of an analog signal, maybe the, you know, jitter and ripple, I, I don't know, but it, these digital communications really have sort of error correcting protocols that, 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 that take care of those things. And, and, you know, the purity of the copper wire is not, um, you know, is not usually, uh, is not usually an issue. Now, maybe some, you know, maybe some super audiophile might disagree with me and, and try to explain to me why I'm wrong or why what we wrote in the book is wrong. But even so, um, the number of people who should be buying a $500 cable for their audio system is really small. Uh, and one hopes that that extra verbiage and jargon and so on doesn't affect the people, you know, who have no hope in life of ever hearing the difference. Right. <laughs> or no care whether they do. Right, right. Uh, and that's what that's what this stuff does often a lot, right? Like when you're investing, you know, you don't really care whether the market goes up or down tomorrow or whether, uh, you know, or you don't care about CDOs and real estate investment trusts and mortgage-backed securities and so on. There are some people who really need to know about that stuff, uh, you know, and, and probably a subset of those people who really should have invested in those things. But all that extra information um, can easily... Uh, you know, give a false sense of understanding to people who really don't even need to know it and are better off, uh, you know, focusing elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So I know this is going to be speculation, but let's just speculate. What is, um, what, from your uh, perspective, what is the purpose uh, as an organism to present these narratives to ourselves that we're smarter and more competent than we really are? Um, yeah, this is going to be somewhat speculative. Uh, I think this is an interesting research topic to try to uh, to, to try to figure this out. Um, uh, you know, there, there's some obvious answers that one can give, such as uh, you need a positive outlook and you need optimism to sort of keep you uh, motivated. You know, there are many failures in life. There are um, a lot of, you know, sort of just random things that, that happen to you that are 
that are bad. And if you sort of take everything to heart and you lose confidence and, and so on, that can't be very good. Um, another way of looking at it is uh, that in uh, over the time period when the human mind evolved, which, which of course is you know a lengthy time period, ultimately going back to the uh, the, the beginning of, of at least mammalian life, but especially in the recent part of that uh, of, of that time period, the recent evolutionary history, the world was much simpler. So I think it was probably easier to accurately estimate uh, one's knowledge of a topic area. There were fewer topic areas that people needed to know about. There was fewer information about those topic areas. And most of that information came from personal experience or being told it by trusted others, usually first degree relatives or people who, you know, you had lived with for pretty much all of your life because communities were small. Uh, the environment didn't include, you know, people on TV shouting at you to buy, buy, buy and sell, sell, sell. And, you know, these tickers going, you know, in front of us, you know, on the TV and information on the internet and, and so on. Uh, and it could be that all of those sort of new innovations are kind of capturing or affecting mechanisms that we have that are well designed to sort of cope with a small number of inputs and to aggregate our personal experience and give us a good idea of our expertise in areas that we have personal experience and fewer sources of information. Uh, but once we get this sort of false sense of familiarity with a topic from all the information floating around about it, um, we lose um, the ability to estimate correctly. Of course, what works stays on television and what doesn't work doesn't. So if it affects whatever it is that our mind is geared toward enjoying, it's going to keep coming up more and more and more on televisions. Uh, if, if you think of the content of television as, as being adaptive in some sense, then television will always evolve to, you know, to, some, kind of optimal, uh, to some kind of optimal viewership. Uh, and it probably is to some extent because there is a lot of data on what programs get watched and what programs don't get watched and what products sell and, and what products don't sell. So uh, that may be right. Certainly uh, the appetite for, you know, sort of false understandings of financial markets, you know, is very high. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe there's a little blip where people have lost a little interest lately because markets went down so, so, uh, so obviously a few years ago. Uh, but just look at all those books out there like Dow 30,000, Dow 36,000, Dow 40,000, Dow 100,000. Um, there's an unending stream of these books that claim that the market is, you know, and making money in the stock market is much simpler than it really is. And all you need to do is know where the Dow is going to and how fast, and then you can ride the, you can ride the train. Yeah. And that segues pretty well into, uh, the other topic I wanted to discuss with you, which is the illusion of cause. Um, because a lot of uh, the History Channel and, uh, the, and Discovery have become a lot of uh, shows about uh, Bigfoot and Bigfoot's ghost and Bigfoot's ghost alien. Um, <laughs> and I think that really plays into the illusion of cause. Could you just sort of uh, describe what the illusion of cause is from your perspective? So, so this illusion is a uh, it's, it's companion to the illusion of knowledge in a way, but it deals specifically with our knowledge of cause and effect. So the illusion of cause is... Uh, our tendency to see cause and effect relationships when all there really is is uh, a correlation or maybe a, a, se a temporal sequence, like one thing happened before another thing, or even no relationship at all, where just based on salient examples of where one thing went with another, um, we sort of infer that the one thing caused the other. And again, we are prone to uh, doing this 
uh, in ways that have become nowadays, I think, somewhat uh, unadaptive. Um, you know, uh, the, one of the classic current examples is uh, the belief that uh, vaccines can cause autism. Mm -hmm. So um, the, that belief got a big boost um, and really it's, its biggest boost from a small study that was published um, in the journal The Lancet um, about 12 years ago or so, medical journal, uh, based on a very small sample of uh, subjects who had been seen by one doctor. Uh, and uh, it had a huge resonance with people, though the idea that uh, vaccination was associated with autism in this group uh, had a huge resonance with people because the symptoms of autism often start to emerge around the same time as kids get vaccinated um, for measles, mumps, and rubella, which is around age two. It's kind of hard to see the symptoms of autism before then. Um, so if they start appearing shortly after the vaccination, the way our minds work, um, we will associate the vaccination with, um, with the autism and think that, well, since the vaccination happened first before I started seeing these autism symptoms, it, it must have caused them. And there's some, you know, there, there's, you can see the plausibility there, right? I mean, if a needle is injected with sort of a foreign substance um, that people don't quite fully understand how it works, it almost seems like magic. You know, if I inject you with, you know, a little bit of this, you know, of this, uh, of this, uh, of this substance, it's going to then prevent infection in the, in the future. It's not sort of an entirely intuitive thing. You can see how people might form that inference. Um, the problem, of course, right, is that uh, plenty of statistical studies, epidemiological studies from all over the world have showed that there are no more cases of autism in people who have been vaccinated, uh, proportionally speaking, than in people who haven't been vaccinated. Um, there's, no, there's no statistical association. This is a case of forming a cause and effect relationship when there's not even a correlation. Right. There's no correlation between vaccination and autism. Um, and yet people form the cause and effect relationship because of the temporal sequence and because of some um, salient examples or, or stories. The examples are so vivid uh, when celebrities talk about them, um, when friends hear about them, uh, when you hear about them from friends, I meant to say, um, that it's uh, this, this uh, illusion of cause can solidly establish the belief or the fear um, even when the statistics don't really bear it out. It seems to me that a lot of times the the simpler story is what wins. So if you just say I got vaccinated, then my you know or my child was vaccinated, and then that caused my child to become autistic. That's a very short, simple story versus uh, having to get into the idea of statistics and get into the idea of pattern recognition. That's sort of dense and difficult to get across. Yeah, it's I, I think I think you're you're right. In part, it's. It's the shortness and simplicity of the story. It's also the fact that it is a story. I mean, it's a story with a temporal sequence of events. That's one of the main characteristics of stories is that things happen in a particular order and the order in which things happen matters, right? That's, that's basic. That's the basis of plot, right? And plot is the sort of the driving, you know, the, the driving feature of, you know, of stories. Um, the rest of it is epidemiology. And one, one key difference there um, is that uh, statistics and research study designs um, are not only things that some people don't know about or don't learn about and were only invented fairly recently in human history, let's say 100 to 130 years ago, um, but they're abstract. 
Um, the it turns out uh, the brain contains a lot of different areas devoted to processing concrete information, like sensory information, um, like information about people, uh, information about sounds, vision, uh, even emotions. Those concrete information processing areas are all well connected to uh, emotional areas in the brain, whereas the areas in the brain that are capable of representing large numbers, um, abstract probabilities, um, and uh, reasoning about cause and effect in an abstract way are fewer and in some ways sort of harder to call into action. They don't sort of get summoned into action as easily as um, those other areas, those other areas do. Wow. Uh, that can, uh, I think that partly accounts for, uh, you know, for, for why the stories are, are still so resonant. One, one result of that is that maybe people who are concerned about this um, from the point of view of concerned about vaccination becoming uh, rarer and therefore potential outbreaks of previously vanquished diseases happening more often, and that is happening. Um, people who are concerned about that um, need to come up with sort of uh, counter stories or counter narratives, um, you know, where they talk about the kids who got sick and died when there was an outbreak of measles or mumps somewhere, mm -hmm. uh, because those can be, you know, equally equally vivid and equally um, as as disturbing and emotionally affecting um, as uh, stories of, of autism. And in this case, we know, <laughs> we actually know that, uh, you know, infection with one of these diseases um, is more likely when you're not vaccinated, whereas we have no knowledge that autism is more likely when you're not vaccinated. That's great. Everyone, did you hear that? Fight back with stories. That'll, that may be your only avenue. Don't fight back with numbers. Well, have uh, have the numbers on your side and don't don't fail to mention them, but don't think that they're going to actually win the battle for you. Right. Uh, it's it's not it's it's not your fault. It's not anyone's fault. It's not that people are stupid or that people aren't paying attention or that even really that people are being stupid about this one issue. Um, I think that it's just a feature of the way the brain is designed. And and I I will you know I, I you know we had our we got all the vaccinations for our for our kid and I'm you know I'm I'm all for that and I've 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 done you know everything I was supposed to and I'm. Uh, but I, I still, you know, I still think about it occasionally. And uh, it's it's those vivid things are hard to get out of your mind. And they always are going to affect your decision making process unless you, uh, you know, unless you sort of, so to speak, try to immunize yourself <laughs> against them. So um, we're nearing the end of our time. I, I want to give you the chance to talk about what it is that you're working on right now. What sort of future projects do you have uh, coming up? Well, we're probably going to write at some point another uh, another book. I don't know exactly what it's going to be about um, yet, uh, but uh, I've also been working on some uh, follow-up studies to some of the ideas that we talked about um, in the first book, uh, trying to sort of unpack um, some of the issues around uh, people's understanding of uh, causality and um, uh, and other uh, and other topics from the first book. I also do research on a lot of other areas that. Um, didn't really make it into the book. One of the ones I'm working on a lot right now is um, collective intelligence. So trying to figure out um, how you can measure the intelligence of a, a group of people and what things make uh, groups of people uh, more and less smart, more and less effective. Ooh, um, yeah, so that's one of my other lines of, of research and uh, um, I've, been, I've been working on that also. I tend to work on a lot of different things and, and uh, you know, we'll see which, which ones of them pan out. So if uh, someone wanted to keep up with what you're doing, uh, how could they find you? Uh, I have a website, uh, www.shabri.com. 
C-H-A-B-R-I-S.com. And also we have the invisible gorilla.com, which has uh, information about the book uh, and uh, uh, other cool stuff. The videos uh, for some of the experimental demos from the book and so on. Awesome. I saw what, uh, one of your most recent studies was you do not talk about Fight Club if you do not notice Fight Club. <laughs> That's right. Well, I, I also we also make a small sideline in coming up with good titles for papers. <laughs> you can read that study online, everyone. Just uh, if you just Google that, it's actually out there for you to read. Um, yes, that, that actually, that study was inspired by something we wrote about in the book. So the book has really been a great source of inspiration for more research on itself, even while at the same time it talks about research that's already been done. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I, I love both of uh, you guys are doing the, the sort of stuff that I'm totally uh, keyed in on and I enjoy, and I know a lot of people like it, and I look forward to seeing what else you guys come up with. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, now it's time for cookies. Each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study while I eat a cookie made from a recipe sent in by a reader or listener of You Are Not So Smart, and then that person gets a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book, and I post photos of their submission along with the recipe on the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. And this week, what do we have? We have creating non-believed memories for recent autobiographical events and G.G. Green's famous triple ginger cookies. So... Here we go. I'm going to taste this cookie while I uh, read to you the abstract of this insanely crazy study. So here we go. Uh, and this cookie, uh, it is beautiful. It is brown and has the um, the uh, glittering, glimmering, uh, sugary quality all over it. And um, it's made with real ginger. And it's also got molasses in it and all sorts of other stuff. Oh my God, it's going to be fantastic. Here we go. Mm. Oh yes, uh, Gigi Green is the submitter of this particular cookie recipe, so Gigi, you get the signed copy of the book, and of course I'll also have a link to the study that I'm going to read, so here we go. Oh boy. Oh. I am a little bitty boy enjoying this cookie and I'm so happy. Oh my goodness. It's, um, it's crispy crunchy on the outside, but not too much, and the inside is all cake-like. And the molasses just sort of hits you, boom, right in the face. And, um, wow. This makes me feel like I'm getting hugged by 6,000 arms that are also putting cookies in my face. Okay. A recent study showed that many people spontaneously report vivid memories of events that they do not believe to have occurred. In the present experiment, we tested for the first time whether, after powerful false memories have been created, debriefing might leave behind non-believed memories for the fake events. In session one, participants imitated simple actions, and in session two, they saw doctor video recordings containing clips they falsely suggested had performed additional actions. As in earlier studies, this procedure created powerful false memories. In session three, Participants were debriefed and told that specific actions in the video were not truly performed. By the way, I am reading from the actual study. Beliefs and memories for all critical actions were tested before and after the debriefing. Results showed that debriefing undermined participants' belief in fake actions, but left behind residual memory-like content. These results indicate that, and this is the most important part, let's have another bite. Oh my... Mm. God, seriously. 
you should make these. Last week, unbelievable. This, oh my god, okay. Um, here we go. These results indicate that debriefing can leave behind vivid false memories which are no longer believed. And thus, we demonstrate for the first time that the memory of an event can be experimentally disassociated from the belief in the event's occurrence. These results also confirm that belief in and memory for an event can be independently occurring constructs. Okay, so all that technobabble talk at the beginning of the episode is probably coming back to you right now. But um, this this would be psychobabble if it was actually babble, but this is real science. So what are we talking about here? Psychology has known for quite a while that it is ridiculously easy to create false memories. In fact, memory itself is highly embellished and many of the things that you believe are part of your life story are false, or at least they're, those memories are not perfect. They are constructed anew each time you remember and therefore they pull in information from your current life, from your current understanding of how the world works and they just change. Memories are just not uh, recordings. You don't record life and then play it back. You daydream and you daydream with context and that's what a memory is. So in a psychological study where they create false memories in people, they usually have a period of time at the end of the study called the debriefing period where they let people off the hook and they say, guess what? We created a false memory in you and here's actually what happened. And it has been suspected for a while, but not uh, specifically studied uh, that those debriefing periods may not actually delete the false memory from people's minds and they may proceed forward in life with that false memory. So let's, let's, try to make sense of this in your own life. Let's say you clearly remember one time at Disney World, you were startled by uh, someone in the Goofy costume. You ran up and you kicked him square in the giblets and Goofy fell over and everyone laughed and you were super embarrassed. And every time they tell the story, you get more embarrassed about it. But, you know, it's become part of family tradition to talk about it. And then one day you're with your family at uh, during the holidays or whatever and out comes a video. Oh no, look out. We actually have a video of the event. I can't wait to watch this. And when you watch it, uh, it's not you. It's some other kid. Some other kid did the kicking and everyone somehow has over the years changed it into something else. And you have this false memory that you've had forever, but now, you know, you have proof that it didn't actually happen that way. And the study that we're looking at today shows that you can delete the belief in a memory, but not lose the memory itself, which is sort of weird. So what they did is they got all of these um, subjects together and they had them sit across from a researcher and they videotaped the interaction. The researcher would do gestures like they'd rub the table or they would uh, wave their hands in the air and the subject had to replicate whatever the um, researcher was doing and all this was videotaped and then they left and they came back later and they watched the tape but they only watched clips of the tape showing the researcher doing the actions and the subject watching so each subject watched themselves watching the researcher do the thing 
and they asked people to fill out this questionnaire that had two different scales. One was how much do you believe and how strongly do you believe that this happened? And the second was how strong is your memory of the event? And then they brought them in a third time and they revealed that they had secretly, after everyone had left during the first run of the experiment, they had, um, the researcher do two gestures that actually, uh, without the other person sitting across from them, they did two gestures with the camera rolling and there was an empty chair across from them. And they later went in with, uh, special effects and put the person in the chair passively watching the researcher do two actions that they had never actually seen in the first run. And the second time when they came back and watched and they saw that they filled out the questionnaire and they had pretty much everyone in the experiment had said that they both believed and remembered uh, the fake gesture. But now that it was revealed to them, and supposedly this is mimicking sort of a debriefing, that it didn't actually happen, now when they filled out the questionnaire, what they found was for many of the subjects, they no longer believed that the event happened, but they still maintained the memory that it happened. So they were able to implant false memories in people and then later on when they tried to delete the false memory all they could really do was delete the belief that it happened but they retained the memory of it happening so what it lends credit to the evidence suggests and this is just one of many studies that will have to be done on this is that uh, whenever you discover that one of your memories is incorrect and it gets uh, corrected you don't lose the memory, you lose the belief in the memory. And the imagery and the associations and the connections in your mind related to the false memory will still be there. And the false memory itself will still be there. And uh, that's an amazing uh, discovery about how the mind works. That is the end of episode two. You can find links to everything that we talked about at youarenotsosmart.com. The background music, the music beds, provided by Blackguard SMG. You can find them at blackguardsmg.com. When you buy a track from Blackguard SMG, you can take it apart in all of its multiple levels. So if you have a song, you can get all the background tracks, all the front tracks, all the tracks left and right, and you can mix and match them to do whatever you want with them. So it's very cool. The intro music is by Caravan Palace. The song is Clash. They have several albums, and you should buy them.